knows that there is a, an enormous controversy <clears throat> that swirls um, around this portion, beginning really at verse 14 through 25. Um, there, is, there is no section of Scripture that has more written about it than, than uh, this section of Scripture. And uh, the, um, the key issue, or I guess the key d- d- um, issue of debate has to do with um, who Paul is talking about in this section. Uh, um, There are those who have have even given it a name called the the Roman 7 man. Who is he? Who is this Roman 7 man? And uh, we'll try to look at a little bit of that tonight. I I really brought the big guns with me. I I brought... uh, Calvin's Institutes, out of which I'll read in a moment, but uh, that should settle it forever. But um, before we get to the uh, to the really the beginning place of the discussion and dialogue and uh, really the controversy, there's one verse that separates us that we uh, we can't afford to ignore. It is verse 13, and it is somewhat transitional. Uh, but it is, I think, pretty vital um, to the discussion. Um, before I um, even get to verse 13, let, let me go back to this Romans 7 man and who he is, what's his identity, who is Paul talking about, what kind of man is being uh, described there. Uh, let me say that um, uh, I'm going to offer you an opinion, and I think I'm going to get to it tonight. Uh, I'm going to offer you at least what my opinion is as to who Paul is talking about. But there are, uh, there's a, such dialogue and such debate over it. I just want you to know, um, getting it right is not uh, an issue over which your salvation, on which your salvation hangs. I, I do believe that you can um, um, even adopt a different position and still find yourself safely within the boundaries of, um, of or, or the Orthodox community. But, um, uh, but I wanted to say that up front, because as we, as we work through verses uh, 13 through 25, we're going to go back to this again and again and again. And I'm going to be saying, well, see, that's why I say that I believe it's that man, etc. So just kind of hang around. Again, uh, if you've never really studied Romans 7, this may be all gibberish to you, but if you've studied Romans 7, you know how much there is, um, how much ink that has been spilled over that one issue. Let's take a look, first of all, at verse 13. That's really all we're going to cover tonight, and then we're going to jump into this piece of controversy, which will hopefully prepare us to go further into verse 14 next week. Uh, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing in me, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Now, I'm sorry if that is a confusing verse to you, um, and I I certainly hope it won't remain such by the time we're finished tonight. But that is a wonderful statement, and and I I hope to be able to handle it with a fair degree of alacrity. Um, So we'll um, we'll see. The the text opens, well, first of all, 
you remember that Romans 7 has to do with the role and purpose and function of the law. That is this whole chapter. That's the context. So don't forget that as we proceed. Paul is trying to establish um, the, the proper understanding of the, of the role of the law and the life of, uh, in our lives. But, but then when we get to verse 7, this, uh, this question that comes up that is asked in verse 7, what shall we say then is the law sin? Because Paul had taught such a clear doctrine of justification by faith apart from the works of the law, there was a confusion that resulted because he taught justification by faith so emphatically, so clearly, so, so passionately. Um, the, the misunderstanding was, okay, Paul, if, if, this what you, if I understand what you're teaching, then the law um, not only does not have a role to play, it is positively evil. That is what Paul is trying to correct. The idea, number one, that the law is evil, and number two, that it has no role to play. It does have a function to play. And, of course, he has tried to answer that question that the law is sin. He's tried to address that in verses 7 through 12. Now, the, the, that same argument continues just a further step or so. It opens with a question. Has then what is good become death to me? Now, the thing that is good that he's referring to right here, that first question, is... Let, let, me, let me kind of... Uh, paraphrase it. Has then the law, which is good, become death to me? Now, guys, um, uh, let me point this out real quick. Certainly not. That is that, that famous piece of negation called, uh, it's, the, it's the strongest piece of negation open to him in the, in the Greek language. Meganoitoi, may it never be. It is used 15 times in the New Testament. And Paul uses it ten in the book of Romans. Um, but here's another one. He is denouncing such a position uh, categorically. How um, can something that is good, that is the law, how can it kill you? Now notice, that is what he has said. Look at verse 9. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Is the law what was responsible for killing him? So he asks, how then, or has then, what is good? That is, the law. How then has this good thing become death to me? No, 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 no. That is to misunderstand. No, it is, um, is the law the cause of Paul's death? Is it, is it the law's fault? No. And, and interestingly, for those of you who have any, um, any grasp of the Greek language, he seems to be so agitated at such a suggestion that the next sentence that you see that starts with but and ends in the period, he is so agitated that he writes a sentence with a lot of Greek words in it that contains no verb. He seems to get so carried away by such a suggestion that he, that he, he writes. The verbs that you find in there are really kind of verbs that are derived from participles. He really doesn't even have a predicate 
in that whole sentence there, which is, which is kind of interesting. But the, but the point is, the justification by faith that I teach, by no means, in any way, under any circumstances, teaches that the law is sin, or that it is the law that slayed me, that killed me. And notice what he says. Has what is good, that is the law, become death to me? No! But sin, that it might appear sin. That is, it is sin, which is the violation of the law, that caused his death, or that slayed him. And, and that is the point of this section, ladies and gentlemen. That's why, even though verse 13 being transitional, it's important to the rest. Because that is the point of the rest of this section. That is, that the law is not the culprit. It is sin which is the culprit. And, and may I say again, no matter how you answer the question of who is this man that he's describing in 14 through 25, that is still the point. The point is still that it is sin. Uh, it, it is it is sin that's the culprit, sin that's brought about death, not the law. Um, keep reading. But sin that it might appear sin. That is, so that, that sin could appear to be really what it is, that's what the law has accomplished. Sin is deceptive, and what the law has done is remove all of sin's masks. Look. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me. That is, the law didn't produce the death. Sin produced the death in me through what is good. That is, um, the violation of the law, uh, or sin which is the violation of the law, produced the death. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. All right, let me, let me try to uh, summarize um, no, says Paul, it is not the good thing, the law, that produced the death. It is the violation, it is sin, which is the violation of the law that produced the death. And that the purpose of the law was to expose sin in all of its horror. That is, the, the, the operation of the law, or the, the, the function of the law is to expose sin in all of its deception. The, the, the law removes all of its cover, and, and the law exposes sin, uh, the, the sin that we inherited at birth. And it, that, it, that is, that sin is so perverse that it can even use what is good, the law, to produce death. It wasn't the law that produced death in Paul. It was sin. Sin becomes the occasion. Excuse me. Back up. Law becomes the occasion of sin. Which is something that he said in verse 11. Law becomes the occasion for sin. Only as it arouses the depravity that already lies within me. So there is in residence, in all of us, a principle of sin 
that gets aroused by law, it lies there dormant, it lies there deceptively, it lies there with masks on, and what the law does is expose it for all of its sinfulness, for all of its ugliness. That's what he's saying here. That is the purpose of the law. So that sin, this is the purpose, so that sin, through the commandment, through the agency of the law, might become exceedingly sinful. Through the law, ladies and gentlemen, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding sinful character of sin is exposed. And thus you see the real purpose of the law. The law is not what slays. The law is what exposes. The law is what exposes the sin that is already residing in all of us in the first place. And that is the function of the law. The law exposes the sin that we inherited at birth that lies uh, under some kind of deceptive cover in all of our hearts. You know, guys, um, again, notice that the law's function is to show you how exceedingly sinful is sin. How evil must that thing be which works its greatest evil through that which is the perfection of the righteousness of God. Did you get that? (laughs) How wicked must something be that it can even use an expression of the perfection of righteousness, the law, to produce death in us? The law, I mean, or that sin is so vile, it is so perverse, that it even takes that which is, is wonderfully beautiful and uses it to our destruction. What um, God would have you see through the operation of the law in your heart is just how sin had just how much sin has ravaged that heart. Um, the operation of the law, the legitimate, appropriate function of the law, is to show you just how sinful is sin. There is nothing worse than you, that you can say about something than to say it is sin. When you, have, when you have said it is sin, you have said the worst that you can possibly say about it. You know, guys, um, most of us fear sin. I, I think that's a, a a fairly safe assumption on the part of so many of you that we fear sin. But why? Why do you fear sin? Uh, is it just a fear of public shame? That is, the reason that you don't have an affair is because 
your picture would get in the paper and, and then you'd lose your house and it would, it would destroy your reputation. Is that why you fear sin? Just because of the, of the public shame it might bring upon you? Or do you fear sin because it is so vile? So vile that the only thing that could remedy it was the substitutionary sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God. The only hope that any of us had to remedy the sin that's a part of us is that God give up His Son. So you fear sin because it might bring you shame in the open market? Or do we, do we have a hatred of sin because of its exceeding vileness? Um, the the proper operation of the law is for us all to discover the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Now, um, I, I want you to know, the reason I said that verse 13 is important for verses 14 through 25 I want you to notice that what I think Paul has said is that sin, um, this is hard to explain, sin continues, sin marches on, sin moves forward, sin goes with us, and sin uses the law even now, and, and as you, if, if you're astute, I've just played a card, but Sin marches on using the law the same way Satan used the law against Christ in Matthew 4. Remember, let me, you don't need to turn there, but let me, let me just read you. Um, here's what Satan says to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, How shall uh, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Do you see what Satan has done? Satan has taken that which is perfectly righteous and sought to use it in such a way that it would turn into death for uh, even the Son of Man. I'm saying that sin marches on and, and sin uses the law in us uh, taking that which is perfectly righteous and seeking to use it to produce the same kind of death in us. Now, um, verse 13 gives you a wonderful summation of the, um, the appropriate use of law. It wasn't law that killed me. It was sin's violation of that law that wrought death. And at the same time, sin was exposed so that we could see it in its exceeding vileness. And the law accomplished that. That's what verse 13 says. Now, now we come, um, um, having 
hopefully brought some clarity to um, verse 13. Let me address the issue about um, who is being spoken of or who is being described or who is being talked about in this, uh, in this section. Um, it is a very significant question and it has been debated. Um, I hope I don't overstate. It has been debated for centuries. Um, it is pro- this is probably the most debated section uh, anywhere that you're going to find in the Bible, but certainly in, the, uh, in the Paul's epistle to the Romans. And the debate, as I said, centers upon who this man is whom Paul is describing from 14 and on. When you get a statement like this, verse 19, for the good that I, for the good that I will do, I do not do, but the evil I will not But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Who is Paul describing when he says something like that? Um, When a man cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am, what kind of man is crying that out? Um, Of whom is Paul speaking in, in this... These verses from 14 to 25. That is the question. And I'm telling you, it is, um, it is just it's mind-boggling all that is, that is written about it. Um, okay. Let me try to clear away some of the options that really are so obscure, uh, so such a minority that it's, it's not even... Um, worth our attention and time. I will get to the, the main ones in just a second. But here are three suggestions that have been made, and I think we can clear them away rather rapidly. First of all, uh, it was uh, at one time widely uh, a widely held position that Paul is talking about Jews here in this, um, um, in this section. Um, but he clearly... Uh, talks about himself. And notice the number of times that the first person singular is used in particularly verses 7 through, 12, 7 through 13. I, 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 I. He's not talking about somebody else. He's talking about himself. But that was a suggestion that at one time was widely held and it pretty much has been um, debunked. Um, the second suggestion that, you know, was not very widely held, but the suggestion was that Paul was describing himself before he came to an age of accountability uh, somewhere uh, in the ages uh, 1 to 12. Um, but again, uh, um, when Paul does describe himself, say, like in uh, Philippians 3, he never mentions his childhood. That's not normal for Paul to be describing his childhood uh, before uh, an age of accountability. That, that's, that's a pretty bizarre uh, suggestion. There is another suggestion that is made by none other than Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is, as you know, one of my abject heroes. And um, um, I, I, I told you as I started that I'm a, bit, a tad dizzied by the task that is in front of me. Part of the reason that I'm dizzied is because I am going to reject out of hand uh, the Martin Lloyd-Jones position, which is terribly unlike me, 
uh, if, if uh, uh, in my opinion, Martin Lloyd-Jones is the prince of expositors, and uh, to, to, uh, to object to a position that he has is really kind of scary for me. But um, what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, as I understand it, is this. And again, I'm saying this is one of the earlier ones that we can dismiss rather readily. He said that Paul is describing a man who is under conviction, but has not yet understood any truth about one's salvation in Christ. So Paul is looking back and describing something that he experienced as he was coming to Christ. Um, he's now beyond that, but what he is doing is giving you an account of the process, if you will, of his coming to a, uh, a standing in Christ. Now, when did all this happen to Paul? That is, this period that Martin Lloyd-Jones says he's describing. Did it happen on the road to Damascus? Did it happen in Arabia? He doesn't say. But the point is, that is what Martin Lloyd-Jones is suggesting. And I'd, I, I haven't found anyone that shared Martin Lloyd-Jones' views. Um, and, and I don't share his views. So those are th- the kind of three of the, the positions that, that, are, that we can set aside as, as being really a minority position and, and not uh, shared by many. And in fact, I found nobody else that um, uh, agreed with Lloyd-Jones. But. Now, so we come to the, the, the mainline suggestions. The, the three, uh, actually there's probably, well... Um, there's versions, there's lots of versions of one, one of these, uh, but there are, um, well, actually there's only two positions and lots of versions of number two. The, the one position is that he is talking about an unregenerate man, a, pre, a, a pre-converted man. The other position is that he's talking about a converted man. And then there's all kinds of... Um, opinions about where this converted man would be. For instance, um, there's one large segment of Christianity that suggests that it indeed is uh, describing a, a converted man, but it is prior to his getting the second blessing. Now, who do you think is promoting that position? That would be the whole Neo-Pentecostal world, um, the charismatic world. That is, a, a converted man, but prior to the second blessing. Then there is another position, that he is a converted man, but he is um, very immature in his positions. Then there is the other position, that he is a mature Christian man, talking like this. And then there is another uh, um, version of this same thing that says that he is a converted man, but he is living under the law. That was a big Keswick uh, position. Uh, It was a position that almost drove J.I. Packer to suicide. In fact, J.I. Packer will tell you a story about his almost wanting to kill himself. Um, so, uh, uh, let me, let me try to sort some of this out for you. Let, let's go to the, the pre-conversion position. That is, 
This is describing a man uh, long, golly gee, long before he comes to Christ. Um, but at what stage of his pre-conversion, we're not told. Um, but, um, for instance, look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. How does a pre-converted man know anything about the spiritualness of the law? Um, also, you will find that in verse 7, he understands the operation of the Tenth Commandment. Coveting. Now, um, uh, also, um, he says in verse 15, But what I hate, that I do. That is, when he's sinning, he hates it. Does the unconverted man hate his sin when he's practicing it? Does the unconverted man know about the spiritual nature of the law? Does the unconverted man uh, grasp the import and the, um, the direction of the Tenth Commandment? He also says... Um, Oh, um, yes, in verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. That is, at the very heart of me, at the very center of my spiritual being, I take pleasure in the law of God. Now, I'm saying all that to really suggest I, I cannot understand how any pre-converted man or unconverted man would ever say any of those things. Um, um, look at uh, chapter 8, verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. How could this man... The carnal mind, the unconverted man, the man who's an enemy of God's, say he delights in the spiritual nature of the law of God in his inner man. I suggest to you that that is not a possibility. However, how do we deal with this ambiguity that we see in Paul's statements um, like this. Um, for we know that, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. How could a converted man ever say that? Look at chapter 6, verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And then he comes and says, I'm sold under sin. You have there, ladies and gentlemen, a classic piece of ambiguity on the part of the Apostle Paul. It appears. 
So you see, if you, if you say, okay, he's not an unconverted man. He must be a converted man. How does a converted man then say some of the things that Paul says in verses 14 through 25? How could a converted man ever say, I'm sold under sin? Ladies and gentlemen, I want to, I want to prepare you. Because in the, in the subsequent weeks... You have in these verses some of the finest, some of the greatest, some of the most incisive Christian psychological, psychiatric insights ever. If you would like to understand yourself better, then I plead with you to be back here in, the, in subsequent weeks. But let me suggest to you that I believe that we are talking about a converted man. And I've already given you most of my reasons already. Uh, I have five of them. Let me go over those very hurriedly, and then we'll be through for the night. Um, there are five reasons that I want to suggest to you that this is a converted man. First of all, the verbs switch tenses. That is, um, these verbs in 14 through 25 switch to the present tense, the verbs in verses 7 through 13 are in the aorist, the Greek aorist, which is our equivalent of the past. What I'm saying is he was talking about something past then, but now he is talking about something now. Uh, as a result of those present tense verbs. That's my first argument. Secondly, he does say, I've said this in the negative, let me say it in the positive, he does say in verse 15 that his sin he hates. I don't know non-Christians who hate their sins. I do know Christians who hate their sins. I know Christians who lose their temper and they, uh, um, uh, you know, <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times that I had to go get in the beds with my girls and say, Daddy sinned against you. Daddy was wrong. Daddy should have never done that. I mean, um, when was the last time you lost your, your temper on, in, in the, on the highways and byways of the city of Memphis and did something that you thought, where did that come from? And you hate it. You hate it that there's still that much hate in you. You hate it that your tongue wags so loosely. You hate it that you're still so self-centered. You hate it that you have used your tongue to backbite against people that you love. I'm saying you do all that. But the Christian indeed, as is said here in verse 15, hates it that he has done it. That's my second argument. Thirdly, also, look at verse 24. He cries out, O wretched man that I am. Those who disagree with the position that I'm teaching you would say, what Christian would ever say, wretched man that I am? Here's my reply. What Christian wouldn't say, wretched man that I am? 
I mean, ladies and gentlemen, if you will honestly spend some time seated before the searching law of God, I don't know of any Christian who wouldn't say, Wretched! 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 The more I see of me, the more wretched I become. He also goes on to say in that, that, that text, um, Who will deliver me from the body of this death? It's, it's almost an equivalent of, Lord Jesus, would you please come and deliver me from my own from my from sin and mine included. That's my third reason. Fourth reason. Verse 22. He says, I delight in the law of God. And I not only delight in it, I delight in it in the inward man. I, at, at the very deepest part of me, in that place where me and, only me and God goes, that's where I delight in the law. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, no, no unconverted person delights in the law like that. Only converted people. A delight in the law of God. Because very frankly, the law is hated by the non-Christian. Because it, it slays him and, 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 uh, and accuses him. So, um, uh, again, I say that, that kind of delight can only be found in the people of God. And there's one more uh, argument that I have, and it's contained in verse 18, and we'll quit. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Um, in that text, what you see is a man who has come to the end of himself. I have come to the place where I find there's nothing good that dwells in me. Who does that? Who understands that there's really no good in us? That's only a converted man. Um, this question of maturity, whether he's a mature believer or immature, here's why I'm staying out of that debate. By the way, could someone depict and describe maturity for me? What does maturity look like? You memorize a lot of Bible verses? I know some absolute shrews that knows a lot, know a lot of Bible verses. You, you get your five points of Calvinism down? Does that make you mature? I know a man who used to measure everybody by that one standard. And his wife would hang on the phone and backbite. Oh, she's a godly woman. And I think, what? What is maturity? So my point is, if anybody could come up with a definition of maturity, I'd try to figure out whether Paul was mature or immature. I had this guess. This is Paul talking about the present, so it's probably talking about a mature believer. I would guess that we would all call Paul mature. Now here's, ladies and gentlemen, the, uh, the comfort for you. Mature believers. Talk like this. They come to the absolute end of themselves. We'll get to that other stuff later, but that I think is so searching. We're just at the end of ourselves. There's no trust in the flesh. None. None. If it comes, if I'm left to myself and I get the chance to choose righteousness or sin, 
left to myself, I'll choose sin. Mature believers talk like that. Let's go ahead. Father, I do pray that you will use this to instruct your people and that we might find ourselves profiting by the great wrestlings and insights of the Apostle Paul. Might he teach us what is true about ourselves. Might discovering these things about the great duality of the soul, might they help us as we wage this war known as sanctification. Thank you for these people, their, their interest in holy things, and I pray that you will use what we've done to advance that interest. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.